Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. This is Radio Influence. The future is now. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. Welcome in to the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, I am Jason Floyd, as always, joined by Sam Kaplan. Sam, first show of 2018. I, I know you got a little sick this week, but uh, and, and by the way, I thought the, the end of your tweet about that was absolutely hilarious, but how you doing, man? Still a little bit under the weather. This flu is pretty nasty this season, kicking my ass. Got a lot of grief from people for, for not getting the flu shot, but from everything that I've read, the, the flu shot this year really hasn't been that effective for people. So why put that into your system if it's not even going to inoculate you, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going around down here in, in Florida. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the things, if anyone who's followed uh, myself, at Jason uh, underscore Floyd, or, or your Twitter account, at, Sa- at Sam Kaplan MMA, we put about a, a Patreon page that we've set up to get this podcast back into a weekly format. Let our listeners know about that page. Yeah, you know, we haven't pushed it that hard in the last couple of weeks, just with the holidays and then a lot of stuff going on, uh, you know, just a- away from uh you know, the, the online world. But if, you know, whenever we do a show, Jason, we get a lot of feedback, a lot of requests for us to bring the show back weekly. And the best way to do that, to help us do that is to go to patreon.com backslash MMA insiders podcast and review our new campaign. It's a very simple, concise campaign. If you pledge $5 a month and we get 150 total pledges, as soon as we hit that number, we are going to return to a weekly format. We already have a couple, even though we haven't pushed it that hard. We're going to start pushing it hard again. But again, if you support the show and you want to see us come back weekly, check out patreon.com backslash MMA Insiders Podcast for only a $5 a month commitment. You can bring the show back monthly. I mean weekly, pardon me, weekly. Now, when it comes to this episode, of course, the first episode of 2018 for us, we are going to talk about the interview that Jeff Nowitzki did on the Joe Rogan podcast. Also, Jimmy Smith exiting Bellator as uh, his contract, uh, I guess the best way to put it, did not get renewed. Uh, new, new contract and John McCarthy uh, going to be one of the guys stepping into that role. Plus, we'll talk about Chris Cyborg, answer some listener questions as well. Plus, we'll try to get in some other topics as well. But, uh, you know, first off, let, let's start with that Jeff Nowitzki interview that was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, I watched pretty much all of it live, Sam. And uh, I thought there was a, a lot of great information in that podcast, there were some things, you know, I don't try to consider myself a, a anti-doping expert. I, I try to talk to people, read as much information as I can to get the most information I can. And, you know, kind of one of my main takeaways from the interview was just th- there was a lot of information I took out of it. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are going to talk about what was said about John Jones. I thought the very end of the podcast, uh, anyone who was watching on video where Jeff showed this new device that USADA has in terms of, of collecting blood, not the big needles, just a bunch of, of micro needles to get it. Uh, I think a big synopsis for me about the interview is I thought it was a lot of great information. 
I was uh, blown away. I thought it was a very high quality, illuminating interview between Jeff and Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan's last couple of MMA shows that he's done have been awesome. You know, he had the show with Jimmy Smith a couple weeks back, and then most recently with Jeff Nowitzki. And then he's got Ben Askren coming up in, I believe, about 10 to 12 days. So uh, just some great content coming from Joe Rogan. The thing that I kind of was surprised about was Nowitzki comes on. And one of the first things he says is, you know, hey, we don't really make we make it a we make it policy not to get into this the private specifics of you know these cases. And then he goes on to talk at length about John Jones and the situation that he's in and gives a very detailed analysis with regards to his two primary failure drug failures with the UFC. So I was surprised. Uh, that he went into detail, even more surprising that he basically highlighted a potential strategy for John Jones with regards to fighting the minimum four-year ban for a multiple substance abuse uh, violation and kind of paving the way uh, uh, possibly for him to even go below the four-year minimum and get it down to possibly lower. And granted, he is not the attorney for John Jones, and Jeff Nowitzki is also not the head of USADA. He is the liaison between the fighters and the USADA testing body. But for him to put that out there and kind of almost lend a sympathetic attitude towards John Jones was very, very surprising. I think one of the things that, and I think most of our listeners understand this, and there are, there's sometimes I see news stories where it tries to paint a picture that Jeff Nowitzki works for USADA. He does not. He works for the UFC, and I thought you, you laid it out perfectly. I mean, he's he's the middleman, essentially. He is the guy that the fighters can come to instead of going directly uh, to USADA. And, you know, and, and the Jones camp has said some things publicly. Um, you know, th- there was a, a little bit of surprise. One of the, the takeaways, I, after the interview, I guess heading into the interview, I just didn't realize... In terms of the MMA world, how a lot of people outside of UFC fighters seem to be very divided on Jeff Nowitzki. I, I thought it was kind of comical that uh, you know th- they brought up what Brandon Schaub calls them the golden snitch, which anyone who who talks to a UFC fighter knows that's exactly not true. Where UFC fighters can you know contact him and. and ask him various questions about things. Uh, I thought one of the interesting parts of it was he was talking about is a supplement you're taking, is it third-party certified, which he mentioned on it is third-party certified, and how basically if you you know, get caught on a supplement that's third-party uh, certified, you can, you can really just get off with, with the public warning. Um, you know, one of the things that I think where his words got taken out of context was when he mentioned about he does not believe that John intentionally used a banned substance, and I got the feeling that people thought, oh, well, that's going to get John Jones off. Now, on my other podcast, Anime Report, I have said, look, for the UFC, the absolute, you have to be praying for this. Somehow, John Jones gets off on technicality because they need pay-per-view stars. For instance, go look at that UFC 221 lineup and tell me why people are excited to pay 60 bucks for essentially a fight night card with a title fight. That That's what that fight card is. Even though I love Luke Rockhold, Robert Whitaker. The rest of that main card on pay-per-view is a Australian fight night card for the UFC. I agree. But you know, so they need John Jones. But just because he thinks that he did 
that he did not intentionally use a banned substance does not mean John Jones is going to get off. I do get the sense that people uh, around Jones thinks he's only getting one year. I, I'm sticking by, I think John Jones will get a two-year suspension because I, I think one of the things that, you, you and, and look, we've not heard from John Jones. We've not heard what the exact defense is going to be of this. He, I know he's supposed to go in front of the California Commission uh, next month, but how did this sup- supplement or the substance get in your body? Was it via a supplement? And I would have thought after what happened at UFC 200 that John would would not be taking any chances. And we're still seeing this in the UFC where fighters are taking chances with supplements. They don't know whether it's a clean substance or not. A lot to unpack right there, but I want to go back to your initial point where I think you're both right and both wrong. I think a lot of the people that are making the assumption that Jeff Nowitzki, you know, the false assumption, the false uh, pretense that Jeff Nowitzki is, you know, is Usa- is USADA, and because of that, because of his comments, you know, that that means John Jones is is uh, well on his way to getting this suspension greatly reduced. You know, that's wrong. But I also think that Jason kind of absolving Jeff Nowitzki and saying that, you know, and I don't want to misquote you here, but it's it's concerning in the sense that he made those statements because even though he does not work directly for USADA, he has worked for USADA in the past, and he has a very strong connection to them. He can make phone calls to USADA, and those phone calls get answered, and what he says gets taken seriously. So if you are a fighter and your plight is getting sympathy from Jeff Nowitzki, you are in a tremendous position. You're in a much better position than someone that Jeff Nowitzki has decided not to trust, someone that he does not uh, does not believe in. Uh, you look at Courtney Casey. You know, I, I uh, you know, I guess the correct statement would be that Courtney Casey did not run afoul with USADA, but got in trouble with the state of Texas, the state, uh, you know, the Texas Athletic Commission. I forget the exact title, uh, but it's essentially the, the state athletic commission of Texas. You know. The UFC and Jeff Nowitzki, they were calling Texas and they were helping Courtney Casey make her case and they were presenting that case. So to have Jeff Nowitzki believe in your plight, that is a tremendous advocate to have on your side, to have in your corner, even though he is not officially part of USANA. And it's interesting that he was highlighting strategies, basically. You know, anytime you have comprehensive policy, there are soft spots in that policy in which can be attacked. I can tell you as someone that's negotiated high level contracts and, and, uh, you know, been involved with sales and and working for different companies, there are soft spots in in every type of contractual language. And, you know, when you're in sales or you're a contract negotiator, there's always a desire to get deals done. And there have been times in my career where I've been negotiating with a potential client or a potential athlete, and I've spoken to their management. And, you know, they weren't happy with, with the, the, the current state, status of the contract. And, I, you know, there were certain instances where I flat out told them, I go, look, you, you know, when I go back to my boss or my bosses, I, I can't get any movement on these points. But here are the points in the contract that I think you can attack where I think there might be some movement, where I think that, that, that I can get my bosses to bend. And I did that in the interest of both parties because I felt like it, it was advantageous to all parties involved to get a deal done. And Jeff Nowitzki, even though he's not John Jones's attorney, 
basically put out publicly the pathway for John Jones to challenge his latest test failure. And Jeff Nowitzki has a tremendous knowledge of USADA and, you know, drug testing policies and and appeals processes. I mean, you know, this is the guy that went after Lance Armstrong. He is, if not the foremost expert in the field, one of the foremost experts. And to have that insight, to, to, to have that put out there is surprising because he's he's laying the groundwork for John Jones. And I don't know who John Jones's attorney is during this appeal process, this negotiation that's currently going on with USADA. But you have to wonder if, if he's not getting the best in the business, uh, you know, if it's just a marginal guy, that marginal guy could have placed a call to Jeff Nowitzki and, and, and is hearing about those soft spots. And as a liaison, maybe that's in his job description. But what's the difference between a John Jones and then maybe a fighter who was in the exact same boat, but for whatever reason, didn't make a personal connection with Jeff Nowitzki or for whatever reason, didn't come off maybe as sincere, didn't conv- convince Jeff Nowitzki that he it, it was not intentional. Perfect example. That's Frank Mir. I mean, that, there you go. So so it becomes an arbitrary process. And again. Jeff Nowitzki is not USADA, but I'm telling you, Jason, there is a tremendous advantage if he buys into your into your story. I believe he Jones is represented by Howard Jacobs. Um, one of the things, and and I remember when all this went down, one of the things I'd heard, and, and maybe I'm wrong, so don't anyone hold me to this, but I believe since it's an in competition drug test, that the California State Athletic Commission still has jurisdiction over. That's why he has to go in front of the California State Athletic Commission, you know. And, and look, and and, and I've I've always used the line: USADA works for promotions; they don't work for commissions because the UFC, uh, you know, you know, hired them as a, a contractor to handle their drug testing program. And, and there's still, I, I still feel there's a, a gray area between USADA and, and state athletic commissions. I do know that USADA suspensions are placed. In the MMA registry base, so you know any matchmaker out there that's trying, you know, if Sam you're working for promotion and you know you're you're going through to see if a guy's you know on suspension, you you would see it. And my understanding is they're highlighted blue that that shows a a executive director if that suspension has to be from USADA. I still believe at some point, I think there will be a smaller state that will not honor a USADA suspension, and, and that's going to be kind of very interesting to see how that does play out but you know one of the things as you know when jones does eventually have this you saw the hearing whatever that may be if if it's a tainted supplement defense i wonder if those three arbitrators that are brought in are going to look at john and say okay this is a second time you've come in here on a tainted supplement defense are you acting reckless when it comes to your use of supplements? Because in that same interview that Nowitzki had with Rogan, he mentioned about the, the Cialis-type pill that John had and where he got it from and, and how he, it, if you would have really looked around, he would have seen it was a place where PD uh, you know, sales were pretty rampant. And five key words on that website, not recommended for human consumption. So why would anyone with half a brain that's a million-dollar earning athlete take that risk? It makes no sense. And, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that John Jones has erectile dysfunction. I, I, I really find it hard to believe an athlete in his 20s, in the prime of his career, a guy working out every day. 
a guy, you know, supposed to be eating healthy, you know, he's going to have a high testosterone level, a natural testosterone level. I don't think that would be an issue for him, but I could be wrong. I'm not his doctor, but you know, there could be an issue underlying that we don't know about. But if that's the case, John Jones should have went to a licensed physician and got that problem treated rather than just go to some random website. When you're a million dollar athlete, you don't take chances like that. So, you know, the, the, the idea of intent, the argument of intent, um, you know, I, I find that to be a gray area because how do you really know what's in somebody's mind? How do you know what's in someone's heart? And the idea of mitigating circumstances, it's like you said, Jason, it was the second time he did it. That was not a reputable website, uh, a reputable company, not even close to it. You know, they, they talked about the Tim Means situation, and it sounded like Tim Means was a true victim of a company being negligent. In in this case, though, with John Jones, it's it's you know when when it says not recommended for human consumption. That, that tells you all you need to know right there. And, and John Jones did act reckless, and I think he's going to get a pass here, but I don't necessarily think think he deserves one. That's interesting because we did get a question from Scott asking how we saw the situation ending, both our predictions uh, on this, and also says who fights first, Conor McGregor or John Jones, which I think is a really interesting part of the, this equation. And of course, the, the Conor situation obviously much different. I still think he gets two years. I think the UFC's best case scenario is that it's a one-year suspension and he can return to fighting in August. But I'll say this, Sam, if you're Mick Maynard, you're Sean Shelby, you're Dana White, you're Ari Emanuel, even if it's a one-year suspension, how can you trust John Jones going forward? You can't trust him, but you don't have a choice. You, you, you do not have a choice, Jason. They, they have to uh, welcome him back with open arms if he's able to uh, get the suspension reduced. My prediction, Jason, is that he will fight uh, December of 2018. You talked about a hearing with USADA, but from my understanding, there's a they, – they, there's a potential settlement. It may not even get to a hearing that mm-hmm, representatives yes. for John Jones, they've been meeting with USADA and that these, there's been some movement but in, he, in these, in these meetings. It, it, sorry to interrupt you there, Sam, but part of this also comes into the California state athletic commission. And I think this is the other issue. That's, that's it's a, a much bigger issue in, in all of combat sports is, you know what? What let's let's just say they reach a settlement. Let's let's say it's eighteen months. Just throwing it out there, not making a prediction. Just saying it's eighteen months. What if Andy Foster comes in and says no, two years? I would be surprised. I would be surprised. I, I think that USADA, with their frequency of testing, with their reputation within the industry, I, I find it the the concept of a athletic commission coming out over top of their suspension, I, I find that a concept hard to buy into. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I disagree with, with, with that notion, Jason, with the principle of it, you know, but I, I just don't see it happening. So to the, uh, the end of that question, Scott uh, had asked who fights first, Connor, or John Jones, Connor, Connor. I think McGregor will fight first, but uh, John Jones won't be too, too far behind him. I can tell you, I've heard for several weeks now um, that the UFC really wanted Connor March 3rd. That is when they won in the fight. I, I clearly don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I get the sense that I don't think his next fight is against Tony Ferguson or Khabib Nurmagomedov. I think it's going to be a trilogy matchup against Nate Diaz. Who, you know, Jason, I, I have no idea at this point 
what's going to happen with Conor McGregor. The thing that I keep hearing is that, you know, he did very well for himself in that Floyd Mayweather fight. And he does not want to come back and fight for significantly less money, which is what the UFC is currently asking him to do. And I don't know if the UFC can afford to put him in a financial position where he earned as much as he did for the Mayweather fight. I, I just don't know if they they can do that or if they're willing to do that and break that mold um, until they do though, until they get closer to that financial structure that Conor McGregor graduated to for the Mayweather fight, they're going to have a tough time getting McGregor back into their cage. I mean, look, from a sporting aspect, I would love to see Conor versus Tony, Conor versus Khabib. I I would love to see that from a sporting aspect, but I just, I feel like one of those fights we'll never see. And the one part of this that a lot of people are not talking about is, you know, I, and I've said this publicly, I said it after, uh, you know, 219, if I am Tony Ferguson, I am sitting and waiting to find out what happens with Conor McGregor because that is a life-changing fight. While as a sporting aspect, would love to see him, him and Khabib lock up, it's not a life-changing fight. It's just another fight. Conor McGregor is a life-changing fight, but what Tony has going for him, and I think you might know where I'm going with this, Sam, he is represented by Audi Attar. Who does Audi also represent, Sam? <laughs> Connor. So he's got in, he's got an inside track on what really is going on of whether he takes a fight with Khabib, defends uh, the interim title, or he sits there and wait. To me, if I am in Tony's camp, I'm sitting there, I'm waiting for Conor McGregor because why risk it? I mean, obviously he's confident in his abilities, he's confident he can beat Khabib, but why risk it? And it's a nice package deal for Auditar because he's currently negotiating the potential return of Conor McGregor. Stylistically, the Khabib fight is not the best fight for Conor McGregor. Stylistically, the best fight for Conor, I would say, would be Tony Ferguson. Auditar can not only introduce the idea of what it will take to bring Conor back into the cage, but he can also say, hey, also a part of this deal that we're proposing is the opponent, and that's Tony Ferguson. So I, I think it's very unlikely that Khabib fights conor mcgregor this year or any year i I don't see conor mcgregor stepping into the cage with khabib ever i don't think he needs to i don't think he wants to and i think when you're when your agent uh is not only your manager when you're the lightweight champion of the world but also the manager of the interim champion of the world that's a very powerful position to be in for Auditar. he can make a total power play and the ufc can try to politic and uh, do whatever they want, but you know, Connor and Auditar, they hold all the cards right now. The UFC has no leverage. That's why I've always said the UFC needs Connor McGregor more than Connor McGregor needs the UFC. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And people can respond to what we're saying, Jason, by saying, "Well, Connor has to fight these people, and he has to fight for X amount of money if he wants to go into the cage, or he's never going to fight again." Well, if Connor's not an idiot with his money, he doesn't need to fight again. That's what people have to understand. Connor can't go anywhere. He can't box anywhere else. He can't uh, compete in MMA anywhere else. And yes, it's if if he doesn't come to terms with the UFC, his options are not only limited, but they, there really are no other options. But the, what the UFC is competing with is not Connor fighting for anyone else. It's whether or not Connor fights in their cage or fights ever again. And with the money that he has made. He has FU money now, you know, as long as he's not being 
crazy with it, and I don't think that he is. I think a lot of the the stuff that he flaunts at times, people make fun of him because they they see tags and they claim that it's rented. You know, you can make fun of him all, all all you want, but he's promoting his image with with those with those items, and he's not buying depreciating assets. Well, let's be honest about it. How many people who have you know a lot of excess money are buying those fancy cars? A lot of them are leased. Yeah, and I and that's smart because again, cars and mink coats and clothing, all depreciating assets. And once you drive that car off the dealership lot, it's already gone yep. down in value. Yep. Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting, but I, I just I think overall with the Nabisky thing, it was very fast. The blood the blood device they're using really fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah. And I will say one of the things that did come up in the conversation and I, I just I don't I know that today's athletes are paying for the sins of yesterday's athletes, in particular, you know, with, with cycling. But I, I just don't understand this. Why do you feel you need to wake up fires at 6 o'clock in the morning and get them to take a drug test? Yeah, if, if, they, if it's in their system, it's still going to be there at 9 a.m., 12 noon, I, and 1 p.m. I mean, that's not going to change. It's, it, it's just not. You know, no matter how much water you drink, you know, waking them up at, at 9 a.m. as opposed to 6 a.m., I don't think that's going to be a huge difference. I think maybe it's just a way to – exert their authority I, I, I or maybe they have a bunch of people to test and that's just they've got to get started that early but I, I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned that new device that they talked about you know that could really change the game because right now the only organization in the world that's doing comprehensive testing for PEDs is the UFC and the reason why you're not seeing other promotions be able to adopt the you know, a policy that's anywhere near as comprehensive and exhaustive is due to cost. And, you know, this new device they're talking about, it behooves USADA and the UFC to put this out there because, you know, by doing comprehensive drug testing, it changes the complexion of the sport. Guys and and gals aren't going to look necessarily as marketable. They may not fight the same way. You could make a case that, you know, from a short-term surface perspective, by going to comprehensive testing, the UFC's hurt its product. I don't believe that in the case of – from a long-term perspective because if everyone believes that your, your sport is full of cheaters, then, you know, long-term, you're going to have major issues. But that being said, the UFC has put itself in a position where it's at a competitive disadvantage when it's doing comprehensive testing and the other companies out there are not because you might have guys – that do not want to fight without the juice or gals that don't want to fight without the juice. And if they go to another organization and they're looking like killers and they have this incredibly, you know, hulked out physique and they're becoming incredibly marketable because of that, the UFC is losing out. But by introducing this device and, and finding ways to make it even more affordable, it puts every promotion that's not in the UFC in a negative light if they're not taking advantage of the, these cost savings associated with this new testing technology. I mean, we're going to hopefully get to a point within the next couple of years where it will be so affordable that it will look shady that any other promotion out there will not adopt it. And to kind of, you know, piggyback on my point, you know, you look at Pride, the days of Pride. When Pride was in its prime, a lot of the traction that it got was due to the fact that it athlete that its athletes were not being drug tested. You know, you had Vanderlei Silva look like an absolute, you know, 
god. I mean, he was he was incredible. And he comes over here to the U.S. where there's testing, and and he he doesn't look like the same guy, not even close. So Japan was able to build up stars because it didn't have to do any kind of testing. And you know, there the the, the potential is out there for other promotions here in North America to build their their brand that way. Uh, you know, by only relying on commission testing. But if this technology gets out there and it becomes very cost effective, the UFC is going to be in a better competitive situation. It's, by the way, speaking of, you know, drug testing with commissions, whatnot, should uh, I talked about this on my podcast uh, earlier this week? Frank Gentile, who is the assistant executive director here with, in my home state of Florida, the Florida State Boxing Commission, was really was the guy who, the executive director in Florida for a while now, since uh, Tom Loy. Uh, it was shown the door has really just been a, a business person who who sits in an office where Frank is the person that's out at the events whatnot. He uh, is no longer part of the promote uh, the commission, which is very interesting, especially with the UFC coming to Orlando next month. Something to to pay attention to. But uh, in speaking of foreign drug testing, their bylaws only state that drug testing has to happen for title fights. So uh, like next month, there's a Titan show uh, down in down in Fort Lauderdale. I believe they're doing three title fights. So by law, all all six of those fighters will have to be drug tested. You can about guarantee no one else in that fight card is being being drug tested. And that's not a knock on Titan. It's just the it's just the the financial side of how commissions work. Right. And there's just there's just not money there to sit there and put in a drug testing program. No, I mean I hear you on that, and that's why I'm hoping that this device, uh, you know that. Jeff Nowitzki was showing Joe Rogan. I hope that device, I hope it comes becomes even more affordable in the next year or two. And it, a situation's created where no promotion in the United States, or, you know, or, or North America has any, they can no longer use the reason that finances are preventing them from doing comprehensive testing. Of course, uh, Rogan's interview with Nowitzki was, uh, you know, that was his number one show of last week. Number two was his interview with Jimmy Smith, which, of course, everyone knows by now, Jimmy Smith uh, no longer in Bellator. Uh, I will say this, Sam. Here's my perception. I believe Jimmy Smith will be a UFC broadcaster within the next 90 days. I'm, I'm hoping for that. You know, I have a long history with Jimmy Smith. I haven't been able to keep in touch with him too much the last couple of years. But, you know, I, I first met Jimmy Smith while working for M1. And after my days with them, one, uh, you know, Jimmy and Sean Wheelock made the transition over to Bellator. So, you know, I spent a lot of time traveling, you know, not only the United States, but the world with Jimmy. Jimmy is, you know, not only a great guy, but he is a tremendous broadcaster. So I was very surprised to hear the news that he was no longer going to be a part of the Bellator, Bellator broadcast team. Even more surprised because I know, you know, how highly Spike thinks of him. I mean, he was a very well-regarded employee and talent uh member of the you know the talent team there at at, at bellator and on the spike tv broadcast so it, it was a shock to me but you know the you know the, the hope is that jimmy will get the opportunity to broadcast with the ufc based on merit he absolutely deserves it i think he is the best in the business when it comes to color color commentary and mma the only question I had was, you know, the UFC does not have a long history of hiring outside people to work in their organization in prominent positions. Typically, you have to start out, you know, on the bottom of the food chain in the UFC and, and work your way up over time. 
but you know, based on matter again, Jimmy belongs there. And if the UFC cares about the quality of its broadcast teams, uh, they will do everything they can to bring Jimmy Smith in. You know, look, I know Jimmy pointed this out. You know, no one's is sitting there tuning to the Bellator product because Jimmy Smith is, is a color commentator. But as someone who is in the play-by-play business, what I thought Jimmy did an excellent job of was being able to explain what's going on to the cage to that person who just doesn't know anything about MMA. I mean, look, me and you, we watch a fight. We understand what was going on. But there's a lot of people who are tuning in on on a Friday or Saturday night that are just, they have no idea. And I thought Jimmy always did a great job of, you know. and I go back to a conversation I had when I first started doing high school football on the radio. My boss at that time, Brad James, he said to me, he says, look, he goes, you know what a mic is. You know what a will is. You know what a Sam is. But there's going to be people, if you start saying those terms on air, they're going to have no idea that you're talking about a middle linebacker, right. a strong side, side linebacker, a weak yep. side linebacker. So you have to, you know, and his he says, look, you have to dummy it down. And, and that's what I thought Jimmy does so well is, is he brings it to where everyone can understand what's going on. Oh, I, that's that's you know, Jimmy has a lot of strengths as a broadcaster, but I think what you just highlighted right there, that is his greatest strength. And I think that they will miss him on the broadcast. And Jimmy's a guy that's been associated with the Bellator brand since 2009. You know, that's a long time. And just to, to walk away from that is surprising because, you know, Jimmy certainly has not lost any zip on his fastball. He is as good as he ever was. So to make this move to not renew the contract is surprising. The fact that they, you know, sat him down and said, Hey, you know, we want to talk to you. Now we don't know whether or not they wanted to negotiate down his, you know, per show, uh, fee or if they wanted to say hey we want you just to do a shows and we want to bring somebody else to do b shows and we'll still pay you the same you know uh rate per show you're just going to work less shows you know we don't know how a pay cut was expressed and conveyed to jimmy and his agent um but you know based on the way jimmy phrased things on the joe rogan show it sounded as if bellator was uh, i mean spike tv and viacom they were not willing to pay him as much as they had on the terms of his pre-existing contract and that's highly questionable to me when you've got you know if you know my in my opinion he's the best but you know if if you don't think he's the best you have to acknowledge that jimmy smith is one of the best color commentators in all of mma so to approach someone about that about you know someone that that's that good at their job to approach them about accepting less money for their for their uh for, for, for their performance that you know what does that say what does that say about spike tv and, and viacom and the qu- reason why i ask what does it say about spike tv because it's it's a company that takes great pride in the quality of their sports productions i mean they put a lot of money into the broadcasting of their events and they have a lot of highly talented people that work behind the scenes on their crews and to to go to someone like Jimmy Smith and, and not be willing to continue to pay him what he's worth and what he's earned, is that a sign of things to come? Yeah, it's you have to wonder. I mean, and we know, you know, one of the things that I am not a, a fan of is kind of 
a rotation of your play-by-play yeah. in color analysis. I, I, I yeah. you know, and and I can just speak of this from my experience. You know, if you're constantly having to talk to somebody different, you 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 get a familiarity with that person of, of how they speak. You know, you know when they want to talk. It, there's there's a lot of you know nonverbal communication that goes on between a play-by-play host and color commentator. But you know, one of the things I did find interesting um, in that podcast that Joe did with Jimmy where Joe talked about when they brought in a Cormier or a Cruz for the pay-per-views, and he said, he goes, look, I, I he goes, a lot of times I end up more just asking questions because, you know, for instance, if it's a wrestling scramble, why wouldn't you sit there and say, hey, Daniel, what's going on here? Because obviously that is Daniel Cormier's uh, forte. So I, I thought it was really interesting hearing Joe how he's kind of changed up his game because of you know now being the three man booth, which personally I'm not a big fan of. I, I think the UFC has has done some good things in that. Um, you know when when I got the press release on Tuesday of this week that John McCarthy was stepping in and and, and we now know that he's going to be stepping away from officiating. I was uh, I was kind of like, okay that's that's an interesting hire. Um, I remember when he did his podcast. I thought he he offered up some some great um, opinions on, on MMA. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously, people are not going to. At the end of the day, we're tuning in to watch the fights on TV. We're not tuning in to listen to the broadcasters who are calling the fights. But I'm I'm intrigued by John McMar- by uh, John McCarthy because he's going he's going to be able to bring something different, especially if you start getting into. Say what we saw happen with Chris Weidman and Gegard Mousasi, where, you know, look, Mark Gratner is great, but I think he's being put in a very bad position when you ask him to explain things on broadcast. So I'm interested to see, can can McCarthy do a better job than that? You know, only time's going to tell whether John's going to be good or not. But uh, I, I think, you know, right now you sit there and say, hey, it's, you know, you're going, you know, you know losing Jimmy Smith is a downgrade. It's look, and I think John's a great hire. I, I know John. John is a tremendous individual, tremendous ambassador for the sport of MMA. He he has experience as a color commentator. He you know worked for the Fight Network uh, several years back, and I think his work on the Fight Network was tremendous. I think John will be very good, and I think that you know Jimmy's greatest strength that you highlighted was kind of dumbing down complex concepts and explaining it in layman's terms. I think John excels in that area as well. He's uh, believe me, he's explained a lot of comprehensive uh, concepts to me behind the scenes and, you know, dumped it down for me. So, you know, I, I, we know John's capable of that. So I think, you know, as far as replacing Jimmy, John is as good of a uh, a find as you can get. And I think they're lucky to be able to pull him out of officiating and get him in there. I agree with you, though, Jason. I don't like three-man booths, and I don't like the rotations unless there's a reason for it. Now, you look at the rotations in the UFC. They've got 40-plus dates a year. That's a lot for one commentator to work, so I can understand why they switch things up. In the case of doing a three-man booth, you've got Joe Rogan in the past. He's hinted that he wants to you know, downsize his schedule. He's thought about retirement. It makes all the sense in the world to bring a guy like Daniel Cormier, incorporate him slowly, let him work with Joe Rogan, kind of pass the torch there slowly over time. That makes sense. You look at the play-by-play rotation with Bellator, Mauro Ronaldo and Mike Goldberg. Mauro can't do 24, 25, 26 dates because he's so booked up with Showtime and other things that he has going on. So that rotation makes sense. I don't think it makes sense to rotate Chael Sonnen and John McCarthy at the color commentary position, especially if John's not going to be able to officiate. Let John come in there, do all the shows, 
you know, compensate him to, to the full extent and give him the opportunity to work as much as possible and grow as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's already an established color commentator, in my opinion, from the days of when he worked on the Fight Network. But, you know, John didn't accumulate a ton of experience there. It's a different product, you know, so let let John, you know, have that opportunity to, to own that position. You know, so I, I, I don't I don't understand the theory behind doing a rotation when you're only doing 24 to 26 events a year. And I would say this, and you know, I know everyone loves to do the hot takes on, on social media. Don't judge John by that first show. Wait till he gets yeah. about six, seven, eight shows into him right. before deciding whether you, you like him as a color commentator or not. But look, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're tuning in to watch the fights. Next weekend is a big weekend, not just for Bellator, but also the UFC, of course, with the heavyweight title fight. Uh, you know, I said on my podcast this week, uh, you know, next weekend, Stipe Ngannou is my number one fight. But my number two fight is Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima, and it seems as a recording here this on on Wednesday, January tenth, early on the afternoon, like there is just no talk of Bellator's event next week. Yeah. Um, and it's such a you know it's a huge event. I believe uh, Spike um, you know changes to the Paramount Network. I want to say next Thursday. I, I believe January eighteenth is when they change and and so it's going to be really interesting um you know I, I would love to see Jimmy Smith in the UFC and you know Jimmy Smith is he's a rarity in the sport Sam and the reason for that is he is a color commentator that hasn't fought in the UFC yeah i mean that that is would be a rarity that's you know that's the only thing that i think could hold jimmy back i don't think it should hold him back i wouldn't agree with the UFC's position, position if that prevented them from hiring Hiring him, but it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, there is not a long history of the UFC hiring people from outside their organization for prominent positions. One other thing I do want to touch on before we potentially move to another subject. You know, I did speak to some people in the industry, and they don't work for Bellator. They don't work for Spike. They're people from, you know, in the industry that know what's going on, but they're not directly connected to Jimmy and the situation they had with Spike. One thing that they they brought up was, you know, was – Jimmy, a scapegoat potentially for the ratings, the ratings for Bellator since the pay-per-view. Let's be honest. They haven't been tremendous. They, mm-hmm. they, they could be better. I'm sure that Spike has hoped for better. You know, does Spike believe that maybe going with a Chael Sonnen with a John McCarthy, you know, the theory that's been espoused by certain people in the industry is, you know, are, do they believe that, you know, maybe they can save a little bit money, um, and, you know, get a higher profile guy, will that change the ratings? And if that's, you know, I, I don't know that that's the case, but if it is, I think that's horrible because, you know, blaming your broadcasters for the ratings, uh, that that would be terrible because, you know, the, the ratings issues that Bellator has right now, I think it's bigger than the fights. It's bigger than the the people working for the events. I, I think it's bigger than that right now. It's just that I think a lot of their ratings that have not been strong the last couple of months that have been a little soft. I think that has more to do with the changing times of cable. And we talked about in the last episode, Bellator, I mean, Spike TV and soon to be the Paramount Network is simply not featured on the main tiers as much as they had been in the past. You have to pay to get, the tier, you know, you have to pay extra to get that to get the tier that they're currently carried by by a lot of cable operators right now. Yeah, it's you know, and I think that they can do a better job of as someone who is in the 
marketing field in a sports bar, um, you know, I, I think they could do a better job of marketing the sports bars. And, you know, because that's going to be an interesting night. I mean, I could tell you, uh, you know, obviously I've talked about many times, Johan Promotions is, is a, the company that uh, sells UFC pay-per-views to, you know, restaurants and bars. Uh, they are now also handling Showtime Boxing. And so I can tell you that the place that I do marketing for, we are going to have Showtime Boxing. Uh, you know, So next Saturday night, we're going to have the UFC. We're going to have boxing, but we're also going to have the Bellator fights on. But, you know, I, I think Bellator just, you know, I think they have to do some certain things different. And, and, but ultimately, you got to put on a good product. And you look at the past couple of months, fans just have not been excited about the Bellator product. We'll see if that changes with the heavyweight tournament. I don't, I don't know if it, it really changes or not, but... Uh, you know, I'll be uh, I'll be watching, but I will say next Saturday what is going to interest me the most, Sam, is what does MMA Twitter look like? Yeah, that that should be interesting. But I, I wanted to take it back, Jason, real quick. Digress a little bit. You talked about things that Bellator could do better. You know, in 2018, I want I, I would love to see Scott Coker become more visible. It feels like he's only out there right before the events and maybe for a few days after. I think he needs to, to become a greater media presence. I know it's not necessarily his style. I know that he believes that the fighters should take you know uh, precedence and prominence. But I think that the product could really use someone out there in a more visible fashion and someone that – maybe is a little flamboyant in their statements to get mm -hmm. people talking. And I know that's not Scott's MO, but you know, I know Scott has it in him and I think, you know, he needs to get out there and talk about these fighters a lot more because they're putting on some great fights coming up here. They, their roster has improved tremendously over the last year or two, you know, and it's, you know, Rory McDonald's fighting Doug Lima, you know, pretty soon here. And also on that card, Quentin Jackson is fighting Chell Sonnen. And no one's really talking about that fight. And when that fight was announced, I'm like, oh, my God, that's going to get a ton of heat. You've got two of the best talkers in the business. You know, that's that could be a really fun fight to watch. And I, I'm like you, Jason, I'm surprised that there isn't more hype being generated from this upcoming event. And I really think they need to get out there more and push and challenge the media to give Bellator the exposure and coverage it deserves. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm actually uh, going to be talking to Michael Chandler tomorrow for uh, my podcast next week. I'm really interested to talk to, to Michael about what's going on with him. As uh, you know, he kind of, I mean, obviously he's, he's one of the biggest faces, but, but you mentioned about hype, and I think that's a great way to transition to our, our third big topic here on this podcast, and that is Chris Cyborg. Leading in the UFC 219 that week, I, I just, I really wasn't sure whether. You know, there was going to be a big buzz, but I'll tell you this, Sam. Uh, I, I went out on uh, uh, that night, and the place I was at was was rocking. People were definitely in there to watch the fights. You know, I had I had my bar client, you know, text me saying, "Hey, guys, it's a great night here. We've got a lot of people who are clearly here to watch the fight, and, and it showed that Chris Cyborg is a draw." Uh, you yeah. know, I, I, I don't think Dave Meltzer has come out with what you know what he's hearing in terms of the pay-per-view buy rate for that one, but it is kind of interesting in the fallout of that fight and how Chris has handled this. I mean, it seems, you know, she's really pushing for, uh, you know, a true 145 pound fighter to defend her title against, not, uh, looking to fight a man Nunez, obviously Megan Anderson, who, 
there's just so many unanswered questions out there about Megan Anderson of ultimately why she was pulled from UFC 214 and uh, why she still hasn't fought uh, in the UFC since signing with the UFC. But, I mean, I, I think from a, a, a sporting aspect and also from a, a, a fan interest, I think for the most part, all everyone, does, like Dana White, wants to see it, Cyborg versus Amanda Nunez. I'm getting a little tired of the hypocrisy that the, that Cyborg and her camp put out there. You know, this is someone in Cyborg that has tested positive multiple times for pets. And, you know, they were implying during the lead up to the fight that Holly Holm, you know, is possibly using performance enhancing drugs, which I don't buy into because according Sam, to Jeff Davinsky. She's the most yeah, tested yeah. fighter. You know, I, the I was crazy, just about to say that. I was just know, about to say that. Nine times leading up to this fight. Here's the crazy thing about that, Sam. The top three fighters. I know Holly's number one. Tisha Torres is number two. And I can't think of who number three fighter is. All have never tested positive. You yep. would think that the most tested fighters would be fighters who have previously tested positive, which I, I if I'm in the Holly home camp or, or the Tisha Torres camp, like at what point do you just sit there and look at the side of people and go, so you, you just basically think I'm on something, right? They under the policy, they can do that though. I mean, they, they, Jeff Nowitzki's talked about in the past, the smell test, the eye test, you know, that if, if they see something that, you know, they don't think looks right, they, they have the option to go in and test just about as much as they want. But you know, the, the hypocrisy there is, you know, Chris Cyborg, the, the acronym PEDS should not be coming out of her mouth. You know, I mean, you know, considering her history with uh, positive PED tests. And then the Amanda Nunes fight, the, that, you know, that the fight that Dana White has put out there, that's the fight that he wants to make. And, you know, this is a fight that she's ducking. You know, she uh, she used the, the uh, conspiracy line previously when this fight was they were trying to put this fight together that she didn't want to fight another Brazilian. Well, it's 2018. It's not 2004. Brazilians do fight Brazilians. It's perfectly okay for that to happen in this day and age. You know, and now she's using the excuse that, oh, she needs to win a fight at 145. But Jason, let me ask you this. When she wanted to fight Ronda Rousey, how many fights had Chris Cyborg won at 135? <laughs> That'd be zero. Right. So, you know, why is Cyborg, Cyborg worried about Amanda Nunez going up in weight when she didn't want Ronda Rousey to worry about her going down in weight? In fact, she wanted Ronda at one point to come up to her, even though she was no longer competing in that weight, uh, that weight class. So, you know, if Amanda Nunez is willing to give up 10 pounds and go up to fight her, why, why is Chris Cyborg complaining? You know, I think Chris Cyborg's putting out the Pam Sorensen idea. I'm sorry, Jason. How? Who the hell is Pam Sorensen? <laughs> I, I want to say no, she's no, like. No disrespect. No I, I, disrespect think, I, I, I realize. I realize she's one of the top ranked 145ers in the world, and she's done good work uh, fighting for Invicta. But come on now. Yeah, because look, at the end of the day, the UFC wants to put on fights that, that fans want to see. And, you know, look, and like you said, no disrespect to her. Uh, the fight that the fans and Dana White has been very public that the fight he wants to see is against Amanda Nunez. You know, we got asked by Eric if we thought Megan Anderson's getting screwed. And the answer is no. And, and you know, because, you know, one of the things about and, and I remember when when everything happened with Megan last year where the 214 fell out, I, I reached out to who I thought was her manager at that time. And this person said, no, I'm not repping her anymore. She, she's left. Uh, she's left our agency. And, uh, you know, she just 
you know, and I understand that, you know, she went on uh, when, when Sean Wheelock, Ben Asker, and Joe Warner were doing a podcast of, you know, it was a personal matter, but, you know, she's never really come out and said. And, you know, and then, of course, Chris puts it out there, oh, we're going to fight UFC 221. And Megan's like, no, this has not been offered to me. Um, you know, I, I think that I, I I do hope that we see Amanda Nunez versus Chris Cyborg. And I feel that Megan Anderson should have a fight in the UFC to prove that she's the number one contender. And, and Cyborg's just one of the biggest hypocrites in the sport because, you know, she's campaigning for the Megan Anderson fight. She's throwing the name Pam Sorensen out there. But the fight that's, that's out there that that her promoter wants to make and, and the opponent has agreed to it is Amanda Nunez. And, you know, Cyborg in the past has complained about not getting up enough opportunities to fight. Well, if she goes and sits on the shelf for a long time again, when she had Amanda Nunez, the po- the opportunity to fight her in a high-profile fight that a lot of people want to see, you know, if she declines that, then, you know, she can't make the case that she's been underutilized, she's not getting enough fight opportunities. W- when you go out and say, I'm not getting enough fight opportunities, and then you go around and start politicking and, and, and stumping for particular specific matchups, you've no one to blame but yourself. And one of the problems at 145, and I've always sat there, I've never felt the UFC was in, in the business of developing 145. Right. It was just one-off fights. Is You know, you look at a lot of the top women, 145-pound uh, fighters, they're under contract with Bellator. And and when has being the bigger fighter ever stopped Cyborg from fighting someone? Yeah, I, I, I hope fight, that... Just fight Amanda Nunez. I hope it's a fight we see, Sam. I hope it is. You know, but... Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know who knows. You know, and, and, and maybe a lot of that has to do with whatever the pay per view buy right ends up being for for two nineteen. But uh, you know, speaking of Dana White, he had that interview with Kevin Ioli. Any uh, any major takeaways for you from that? Yeah, you know, it started out like a nice enough interview, very pleasant, and you know, they were uh, you know kind of shooting the breeze and talking casually, and then the topic of Showtime came up, and it was very bizarre to hear him become so critical and question the credibility of Showtime to that extent, questioning the buys that they have furnished and put out there, considering they are a publicly traded company and they would be in major legal legal hot water if they fudged those numbers, whether or not they overestimated the numbers or underinflated the numbers legally, they could get in serious trouble. So I have no doubt in my mind that the number that Steven Espinoza and Showtime has put out there with regards to worldwide buys from McGregor versus Mayweather, as, as well as the North American buys, I have no doubt in my mind that they are accurate. I don't know why Dana White continues to beat this drum that the numbers, uh, you know, that Showtime is under, you know, is underinflating the numbers. Um, you know, maybe it's an ego thing where he wants to be able to proclaim himself as a co-promoter of the biggest combat sports uh, selling pay-per-view of all time and Showtime's denying him that. Or if this is a situation where McGregor, he's kind of, you know, being an advocate for McGregor and McGregor, you know, wants, you know, more, more money from the buys because, you know, there is a term in, in, you know, any kind of commission-based business called shaking the tree. You know, and, and someone who's been in sales, um, you know, and has been around also the MMA industry as well. You know, sometimes when these numbers come back, when it comes to pay-per-view buy rates or selling commission, if someone feels that number's a little low, all they have to do is complain a little bit. Um, 
and suddenly their their company comes back and offers them a little bit more money. So I don't know if Dana, if it's an ego thing or if Dana's just being an advocate for Connor, trying to shake the tree a little bit to get some more money for 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 Connor and the and the UFC. Um, you know, if he's just trying to shake the tree, that's fine. But you know, it, Showtime is a publicly traded company. They're not going to play with the numbers. They're not going to cook the books. You know, the only reason why you would, you know, maybe distrust Showtime with pay-per-view numbers is because, you know, there's been sentiments expressed in the past from fighters and management officials to me that certain companies in the industry of MMA, their pay-per-view numbers aren't always the most accurate. And that, you know, uh, there are some questions at times uh, about certain numbers that are furnished by certain companies. But, you know, Showtime, it's a different situation from for them because they're not a private company they are a publicly traded company so i don't know why he is being so adversarial to to showtime publicly you know he also came out and said that hey he'll never work with showtime again said that he'll never make connor versus gsp gsp will never get the opportunity to fight connor which makes absolute no which makes absolutely no sense to me, except from the the perspective that maybe he wants to give the UFC some leverage. Um, because if they go to GSP and say, "Hey, do you want to fight McGregor?" GSP can say, "Yeah, I want to fight him for twenty million, and they have little leverage when it comes to negotiating him down. Whereas if GSP comes to them and says, "Hey, I want this fight," the UFC can essentially say, "Beg us. What? What? You know." What are you going to accept as a deal to get this fight? How willing, how low are you willing to go? That is the only, uh, if it's a negotiation tactic, then fine. I don't have a problem with Dana White saying that fight's never going to happen. If it's not a negotiating tactic, why would you completely close yourself out, uh, close yourself off from such a potentially mega selling fight? And then why would you close yourself off from doing business again with Showtime? I mean, you know, Connor's next fight, it might be against Nate Diaz. It might be against, you know... Khabib, it might be against Tony Ferguson, or it might be against Pauli Malinaji. You know, if Connor says he wants to fight Pauli Malinaji, who I believe may still be a contracted Showtime boxer, I know he's a broadcaster for the network. I'm not sure who holds his boxing promotional rights, but you know, getting into th- this scorched earth mentality is not not the right way to go. But you know, who am I to say? Dana is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and i am well below that and you know dana's been doing this for years but it's just it's 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 a way of business that i don't necessarily understand i mean look at the end of the day connor is the only fighter they have that can get a million buys right and there's no one close to that yeah i mean i mean if jones comes back i mean you know i think you're probably still in the six seven hundred thousand range maybe you would have to put him against brock lesnar to get close to a million yeah, I mean, and so it's just, you know, you look at the where the UFC is right now. I mean, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you need big fights. I mean, obviously, they're gonna, they're putting a lot of stock in, in Francis Ngannou. I've been saying this for weeks. I think they are very publicly rooting for Francis Ngannou to beat Stipe Miocic. Well, he practically and, lives at their office. And I will say this. I think a lot of people have forgotten what Stipe Miocic has done over the yeah. past couple of years. I, 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 I have a feeling next Saturday night, Stephen Mochis is going to get his hand raised, and he's going to be and he's going to be telling everybody, "Did you forget what I can do?" And uh, it, that that was interesting. You mentioned about Ngannou being at the, essentially living at the Performance Institute. That was another part of the Nowitzki Rogan podcast where 
let's be honest about it. It was a little bit of an infomercial for, for the Performance Institute. But one point that Jeff had brought up, and it was something that you had you had brought up on this podcast a while ago, is, hey, are you going to have MMA coaches in there? And that's not the case. They have to bring their own MMA coaches in there. Um, talking to fighters who have been out there, I've heard nothing but great reviews of it. Um, you know, I remember talking to Eric Anders and he, and he was saying that one of the things that they, when they put him through all the testing was like, Hey, you don't need to be putting yourself through three workouts a day. You could do two workouts and still maximize peak performance by doing more workouts for your body. It's not necessarily the greatest thing for you. So there's a lot of great things they are doing there. Um, and I know a lot of fighters are taking advantage of it, but the problem is, you know what? 90% of the UFC roster doesn't live in Las Vegas, you know, so they have to, you know, travel to get there. So it's, uh, but the, it was, you know, I hear Jeff, nothing but good things about the performance Institute. Jeff did say some coaches have explored the idea of opening a Las Vegas branch of their fight gym, uh, out there so that they can, you know, do some training off site at their gym, but then go over and spend as much time as needed at the UFC performance Institute. I think that's a very intriguing possibility. And if I was a fight coach, that's exactly what I would look to do is, you know, open up a satellite gym in Vegas so that we could, you know, you, you have that, you know, quick access to the UFC performance Institute. I mean, just for injury recovery alone, it, it's amazing being able to eat your meals there at no charge. I believe it is, is Correct, insane. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's very, very uh, intriguing. And I believe Nate Diaz was just recently at the Performance Institute. And was when he was told that he could train there free of charge, he said, when can I start? Which is uh, interesting because maybe that could be the prelude for him coming back. Or maybe that's just Nate Diaz being Nate Diaz. Yeah, who knows? Uh, let's get some uh, questions in here before we get out of here on this episode of the MA Insiders podcast. Uh, first up, we were asked about the PFL, and will we actually think they'll have a event this year or just quietly dissolve? Of course, it was earlier this week, Aaron Hawani uh, put a tweet out that they're looking at a, a June start date. Initially, it was supposed to be January. I, Sam, I hope they succeed, but I just don't see how they do. I want to backtrack real quick. I think Stipe beats Francis, and I agree with you, Jason. I think everyone is going to realize, again, just how good Stipe is. I think he's a more well-rounded fighter. But with regards to the PFL or World Series of Fighting, whatever they're calling themselves, you know, when promoters have fighters under long-term contracts and they don't have the finances to run an event, it's very difficult to tell fighters we don't know when our next event is. So you have to tell them something just because they're telling their fighters June doesn't necessarily mean a June fight is going to happen. It just means that they're, they're trying to buy themselves some time potentially, or they, you know, for all I know, they could really be serious about doing a June event. But if you have everything and truly have everything in place and you're ready to go, why are you telling fighters that they're not going to fight until June? Why aren't you, why aren't, why isn't your next event March or April? Why is it, why is it going to happen? If you're ready to go, if you have the finances and the resources needed to go, why are you saying June? That's that's a pretty far uh, ways away. And when you've got fighters under exclusive contract, I, I don't know how these guys are going to pay their bills. Well, I mean, it makes you wonder how many contracts they may already be in violation of. Yeah, that's that's another you know uh, thing to point. I, I think that what you know, if, if I had to venture a guess, and Jason, it's purely a guess, conjecture on my part. They don't have a TV deal. They need a TV deal, and by putting it out till June. 
it gives them more time to try to secure a TV deal. But I don't know any network out there right now that's interested in uh, any major network out there that's interested in paying a rights fee for a major national MMA event. Exactly, especially when you look at the numbers they drew on NBCSN. Uh, next up, uh, just get, uh, this is uh, three questions. I'm just going to say it at once here so we get through it. Uh, Sam, you were asked if you ever tried to sign pro wrestlers at Bellator when you're a matchmaker, and if so, who were they and what did they say? Also, which pro wrestlers do you think could be next to try MMA? Next, uh, what MMA leagues by 2020 do you guys think won't be around? And number three, New Japan Pro Wrestling and Bellator MMA are WWE and UFC's biggest competitors in MMA and pro wrestling. Which one will be will be the one to overtake the other in the next two or three years? Uh, I will say in the third part of the question, uh, neither one is going to take over the UFC or the WWE. Yeah, yeah, that's just not going to happen right now. Uh, with regards to the first part of that question, I absolutely tried to sign pro wrestlers. Uh, two of them that come off the top of my head, Vladimir Kozlov and also uh, Davey Boy Smith Jr. Um, had conversations with both of them i also had some conversations with dave batista about seeing if he wanted to fight in bellator um but the one guy that i was able to sign was bobby lashley we actually signed him a, a few months before uh our regime was actually you know let go and dissolved but you know lashley was a guy there uh mo when we signed mo you know i it was my idea to have him be a crossover athlete and do both pro wrestling and MMA because I knew he had an interest in doing uh, pro wrestling. And I thought that the crossover there could uh, make him an even bigger star than he already was. Just logistically, I think with TNA, it just never worked out. But there was a concept there to do some big things that just never uh, panned out. But, uh, you know, I, I always was intrigued by having pro wrestlers come in and bring their fan bases with them to um you know, MMA. And, uh, you know, I actually had, uh, you know, a conversation once with Paul Heyman about CM Punk. So that was definitely something in my wheelhouse, something that I tried to make happen. And outside of Bobby Lashley and, and Mo, uh, wasn't really able to pull it off. In terms of what MMA leagues will be around by 2020, I mean, I think the easy answer is PFL. Will be or won't be? Will not be. Oh, will not be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, another thing I do want to mention. I think a lot of these regional promotions won't be around. I think the industry is contracting uh, contracting a lot right now. And speaking of regional MMA, it's not been officially announced, but uh, I do have sources that have confirmed to me uh, initially something that was put out there by James Lynch on, on Twitter uh, about uh, LFA uh, being bought by Alliance. I have had sources that have told me that is true. I expect a announcement here in the very near future. Of course, Alliance has been purchasing a lot of promotions, and uh, you know it's going to be interesting with LFA. I mean, it's to me, it's just crazy, Sam, that they do twenty nine events a year. Uh, they do get a rights fee, um, you know, from Access TV, but man, that's that's just a lot of events trying to run a regional promotion, trying to get the right ticket sellers in, in the various markets they go to. I mean, they're doing three events in the next three weeks. Yeah, the, my, my question is, what did Alliance buy? Are they just buying the TV rights and taking their existing shows and just going to put them uh, on Access TV? Or are they keeping all the dates and the venues? And are they going to run, take the current number of shows that they do and just add it to the number of shows that LFA runs? If, if that's the case, if they're combining the numbers there and they're not condensing the schedule. That's crazy. That would be crazy to do, you know, take the existing LFA schedule, maintain that, and then maintain their existing Alliance MMA schedule. That's a lot of shows. Great for fighters. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of opportunities for fighters to accumulate wins and get to the UFC or Bellator. But 
you know, it's a lot of events that potentially don't make money. You could run yourself into the ground very quickly by taking, you know, anytime you run an MMA event, to me, it's a liability. There's the potential there to lose money. And when you're doing it that many times, the potential to lose a lot of money becomes very great. And another interesting point I want to bring up here, Paul Gift, Gift tweeted out that Lions MMA apparently having an issue with its liability insurance provider Alliance MMA, you know, last year ran into some issues with shareholders, some lawsuits there. Major problem if their liability insurance company is not going to pay the legal bills to uh, address those lawsuits. Final thing, and I know you wanted to uh, briefly talk about this, the Disney and Fox deal and the rumor Netflix Apple talks, how that could impact Bellator and Viacom. The, you know, from talking to people in the industry, the impetus for Fox selling select assets to Disney was because basically because Fox believes it cannot compete in the ever-changing landscape of media. And that's interesting to me because, you know, Netflix has over 100 million subscribers. Hulu has over 19 million now. It grew, I believe, by, I think it was like 20% in the last year, maybe even more than that. They had a huge year of growth this past year. A lot of companies believe that they cannot survive in this current landscape things are changing the the distributors are, are being pushed out there's really uh not necessarily going to be as big of a need for for middlemen um you know you're going to get your content directly from the provider going forward pay-per-view is changing as well it's dying out um you know viacom stock price has not been as strong as it had been in the past some of their networks are struggling you know is viacom going to adopt the mindset of a fox and say you know what we can't compete in in these changing times we need to sell either the entire company or sell some of our assets um you know in order to become a stronger player for the future and really transition this company to be better uh structured for the future you know do that do they make that decision do they adopt that mentality and if they do do they sell some of those cable networks that they have that maybe aren't strongly rated right now? And if they were to sell them, would Paramount Network be one of them? And if someone were to acquire Paramount Net, uh, Network in an asset deal, what would they think about continuing to operate Bellator? Yeah, it's a uh, very, very interesting uh, time in MMA. Of course, it always is. But Sam, man, it was always it was great chatting with you. Always uh, love getting your insight, man. Awesome. Love doing the show with you. It's good to do it again for the first time in 2018. And again, if you want to see us come back weekly, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash MMA Insiders podcast. Become a Patreon today. Help bring the MMA Insiders back to a weekly format. And, of course, uh, you can be sure to follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA. Of course, you can follow myself on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. And by the way, my other podcast, the MMA Report, uh, is already out for this week where uh, myself and my co-host Daniel, we preview Sunday's UFC Fight Night card, of course, on FS1 main card, 10 p.m. Eastern time. So let's go wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and Google Play. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. This is a Valor Hour Quick Fix on Radio Influence. 
We are joined by 2018 Knox County mayoral candidate Glenn Jacobs. But millions of WWE wrestling fans know him by another name, and that is Kane. Your presence, obviously, in this race has put a little bit more of a, a spotlight on uh, the, the politics of this region, which is great. Uh, you know, but for, for the people that only kind of know you as a, as a performer in WWE, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you, the policies that you would bring to the table that, that would be different uh, for the people at Knoxville. Well, sure. Uh, I, overall, Knoxville is a great place. Knox County is uh, a great place to live, uh, to work and to raise a family. I think the county government has done a very good job, actually, uh, over the past several years. Now we're poised to take the next step. You know? And when you look at the global economy, it's the most competitive it ever has been. I mean, we're not just competing against Chattanooga or Nashville uh, or Atlanta or Charlotte. We're competing literally in a global economy. And it's not enough for us to say that this is a great place. We have to strive for excellence every day. Um, we have some great things going here. Uh, the uh, the Pellissippi Parkway and the Technology Corridor, uh, it is producing results. I've been out there and saw a couple of companies that are just doing tremendously wonderful things, uh, literally world-changing things. And uh, to be on the cusp of that, uh, this is just a great place. And uh, I think we need to promote East Tennessee and to promote Knox County. Uh, when we look at our educational system, our teachers do a great job. Our administrators do a great job. Uh, there has been a trend from Washington, D.C. over the last several decades, really, you know, to push for everyone to go to college. And I feel that uh, children are often uh, characterized as failures if they don't they don't go to college and uh, college is a great path to success, but there are other paths as well. So I think we need a lot more emphasis on career and technical education. And I think that's actually happening nationwide. And uh, then you look at some of the other things like with recreation opportunities, we have tremendous outdoor recreation opportunities. What you guys do in, in the world of entertainment uh, is as important as well. Those are all quality of life factors that help attract businesses to our region by giving employees uh, a great quality of life. Um, you know, so those are all things that, that I'd like to look at. Uh, we're often, when we think Knox County, we don't think of it as being uh, a great outdoor recreational destination, but it is. Uh, you know, when you look at South Knoxville, we have uh, mountain bike trails in an urban area, which is um, this we're only a place in the country that has that. You know, they are building the BMX track over at South Oil Middle School, uh, which again, uh, that's going to be a huge draw for our area. So uh, I think a lot of it is is really working to promote our region, to promote Knox County and also East Tennessee in general. The Valor Hour with Tim Loy and Casey Oxendine can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com. dot 